0: All right, here we go. Here we go. It's Valentine's Day tomorrow. I hope you guys are ready. Uh, anybody got steak on the menu tonight or tomorrow? My kind of folks represent. Oh, man, nobody's got steak on the menu tonight or tomorrow. Thank you, Randall. I appreciate you not letting me be out there on that limb by myself. What, what, chicken in the house? Anybody? Chicken preference? Okay. Anybody just like fasting tomorrow? Because you're not raising your hands here. I'm Chocolate. Oh, there we go. That is a major food group. Yes, it is. That's awesome. Okay. Well, hey, it is Valentine's, ready or not. Here it comes. Um, So I kind of wanted to start things a little lighthearted. That's a a Valentine joke right there. Um, what, what, What flower gives the most kisses on Valentine's Day? Tulips. I've been at a Calvinistic conference all week, and anyway, some of y'all won't get that joke yet. What did one Jedi say to the other on Valentine's Day? Yoda one for me. Yoda one for me? Anyway. Stu, you'll appreciate this one. What it is a short joke. <laughs> yes, it is. What did the cook say to his girlfriend? You're baking me crazy. Sorry. Uh, What did one light bulb say to the other on Valentine's Day? I love you watts and watts. Watts and watts. All
1: right,
0: one more, one more. We're done. What did the farmer give his wife for Valentine's Day? Hogs and kisses. Yes, dad jokes live on. Thank you. Thanks. See, that was worth sticking around, wasn't it, kids? Huh? Anyway, all right. Take your Bibles this morning. Let's go to the Italian book of Malachi, uh, or Malachi, as we prefer to say Malachi, the book of Malachi. Uh, if you found the New Testament Matthew, hang a left. Go back about 400 years, and you'll find Malachi. So uh, that's the last book in the Old Testament. Last book in the Old Testament. As we've been talking about in the past two studies, uh, we laid the introduction and we realized that um, Malachi is the last prophet to speak in the Old Testament. That 400 years of silence will be broken by the voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist. John the Baptist would be on the scene and he would announce, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. and the the pronouncing and the declaration of the coming of Christ. But Malachi concluded that last section of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, and again, 400 years of silence would follow. We talked about, uh, again, in laying this foundation, uh, in Malachi's day, the, the people had been back in the land of Jerusalem for about 100 years. You remember they had been held in captivity uh, Babylon had just come through and ransacked everything and taken them captive. And they had been in captivity for 70 years. And, but now they're back in the land. They have rebuilt the city. They've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the walls under Nehemiah. And now it's about 100 years since their return into the land. Worship was back on the scene. Uh, again, the sacrifices had been returned to the temple. Things were seemingly back to normal but there was a problem. The people's hearts were not where they should be. Yes, they were going through the rituals. Yes, they were going through the motions, but that's all it was. A ritual, a motion. And I think there's a lot here for us, church, recognizing uh, the example given to us in the Old Testament by the people of Israel. That if we're not careful, we find ourselves too in this condition of apathy complacency. Even though they'd gone through a lot of tragedy, they had faced a lot of things in their, in their past, and recent past, and yet you would think those circumstances would have driven them to their knees. you think that it would have caused them to want to cry out to the Lord, to want to get their hearts and lives in line. And yet, it was business as usual. I can't help but think about, after going through what we've faced, through COVID, and and again, the couple of years that our life has just been disrupted and turned upside down and things are no longer quite normal, you would think there would be a renewal in our hearts and passion for the return of the Lord. And yet, I'm afraid too often times, we are just like God's chosen people of old. We too, as God's chosen people, the church today, I'm afraid that we, if we're not careful, we become dull of hearing, we become complacent, we become apathetic. You know, I thank you for allowing me and my wife to get away. We just went on about a three-day uh, trip to sit in a conference down in Georgia, and we were able to sit every morning and all day long into the evening hour soaking in God's Word, worshiping with other pastors and laymen and, 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 and folks who, who love the Lord and were there to worship God, to study the Scriptures. And it was very encouraging, very enriching. And and, and my tank's full and I want to spill it over onto you. And so hopefully that's one of the the benefits of, of such a trip is that I'm able to come back now and pour into you the things that were poured into me. And so I can't say it enough, the importance of allowing that time for your pastors to get their batteries charged and renewed. And I was reminded in that time away in the study of God's Word of the importance of the hour in which we're in. So may God speak to our hearts as He spoke to the people of Israel through His prophet Malachi. May He speak to us today through His holy word. The subject, we picked it up last week, it's probably providential and good that we didn't finish with Valentine tomorrow, the love of God. There'll be a lot of talk of love over the next couple of days, but none probably that will be defined properly or biblically. You know, biblical love, agape love, is foreign to this world. Agape love can only be understood by the children of God. Those whose sins have been forgiven. Those whose hearts have been made new. Only true believers, born again believers, can understand that a holy God has cleaned us, forgiven us, renewed us, restored us with His love with His redeeming love. And as God's people, that is a love that should flow forth from us, that we too must be ready to forgive one another. We must be ready to love one another in the love of Christ. And so we find ourselves in the book of Malachi here again in chapter 1, verses 1 through
1: 5. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel, by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau, Jacob's brother, says the Lord?
0: Yet Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I've hated and laid waste his mountains. And his
1: heritage were the jackals of the wilderness.
0: Even though Edom has said, We've been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called to the territory, they shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Father, I do pray that you will speak to our hearts, that you will illuminate and enlighten us with the truth of your holy word, to recognize, help us to recognize
1: the love of God, So make yourself known in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: We talked about last week the divine and the importance of this message as a a message from the Lord. This is divine revelation. This is authoritative. Thus saith the Lord. We talked about the declaration that was, again, the message that was being brought by Malachi. And it, it was a message uh, sent forth from God. We ended here in the dispute, and we're going to pick up here in the midst of this. But again, we kind of cracked this and began to talk about uh, what was taking place here at, at this time. And you'll recall that, uh, again, uh, the people of Israel were um, going to be challenged with a number of questions from God. And they would dispute these questions, these statements, these claims. God says, right from the start, He says, I've loved you. I love you. And they question it. How have you loved us? And isn't this true to form even today? I mean, we meet people in the world and and what they do is they they look around at their circumstances. They look around at their troubled life, the problems they face or the things they're going through right in that moment. And instead of looking at God and His character and His nature and His person, they look at these problems and based upon the problems, they define God and say, God must not love me. God surely couldn't love us because if He loved us, why would these things be happening? And if you've ever had that thought, that thought is a a thought that is a natural thought. I think a lot of times people, when they wrestle through their faith and trying to understand their purpose in life and and why they're here, that can be an honest question, especially if you've had a problematic life.
1: But I'm here to tell you today that God
0: has demonstrated His love. We're going to see here in the Old Testament how He demonstrated it to the people of Israel. But we're going to also fast forward into the New Testament and as God's people today, you can see His love fully demonstrated regardless of what's going on in your world. God cannot lie. And by definition, we can trust Him and His character and His nature. And that's where we must look, especially in the midst of our problems. They ask, What ways
1: have you loved us? I'm not seeing this in my life. We pick up
0: here in our text the second part of verse 3. So if you would, find that spot. Uh, Again, he said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And and that's where we spent the bulk of our time last week. If you missed that and you want to go back, because that's a very important phrase in Scripture. And we went uh, back to the introduction of where Jacob and Esau show up in in, in Genesis. We we went through to the New Testament and what Paul has to say in Romans. And so we unpacked all of these passages in, in helping us to understand what this phrase means. And so in order to understand this contextually, you're going to have to go back. You're going to have to listen to that. You're going to have to understand these things. What a strange way to demonstrate love. It, on the surface, you think, when, when you hear this to the people of Israel, have you loved us? And he answers, well, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated.
1: And yet... This should have spoke volumes to them. He said, I've laid to waste his mountains and his heritage. I've given that to the jackals of the wilderness. He's making a reference here to Edom's destruction. By
0: the way, who were the Edomites? They're none other than the descendants of Esau. So when he makes this statement, Jacob I have loved, Esau I've hated. In understanding the whole of Scripture, contextually we have to conclude he is talking of a people group. Now he's talking of individuals that started the people groups, you can't deny that either. But we've got to be fair in our interpretation of the Scripture. He's making this reference because there's a good number of years, there's a lot of things that have happened in the past that have brought the people of Israel to where they're at in this moment. They had been in captivity for 70 years. Let's unpack some of the history of the descendants of Esau and Jacob. Because we're not going to understand this in its fullness unless we understand how God has made Himself known through His covenant relationship with Jacob. And again, those passages we looked at last week help explain that.
1: So, let's see if we can't make sense of this. By the way,
0: Let's go. I've got to go back. I was trying to avoid going back and relaying some of this history, but I've got to go there. Take your Bibles and hold your spot there, but let's go to Romans. Let's go to to Romans, and let's look in
1: chapter 9. Remember,
0: they're asking, how have you loved us? And so he's trying to demonstrate uh, his love, and that he loved Jacob. We go to Romans nine,
1: and let's pick up our reading in um,
0: Let's pick up our reading in verse six. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed Shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. All right,
1: so here again, think about it.
0: There was a promise that was given to Abraham. You remember the account? Remember Sarah laughs, you're going to have a child? Through that promised seed. This promise goes all the way back to Genesis in the beginning when they fell in the garden. The promise was given there that through the seed of woman would come the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Rescuer. So we fast forward through time and we see Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a son. Who is the promise going to come through? It's not going to come through the fleshly son, Ishmael. Remember that whole debacle? Abraham kind of gets ahead of God. Well, hey, he says I'm going to have a kid. I ain't having it with this lady because she's kind of old. I guess I'll get with the maidservant, right? And they have offspring, right? Ishmael's born. Uh-uh. No, says God. No, he's not the promised seed. So you've already got a contrast being set up. You've got the fleshly line of Ishmael, right? which would end up birthing the nations of of Arabs. Now, they would be blessed and still to this day are in the fleshly realm, if you will, in the world's goods. But that's not the promise. That's not the covenant relationship. That's not where the covenant of God rests. By the way, note for self. Self ain't ever going to get things done. If you and I are going to get something done, it's going to be done through the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be through the promises of God. I'm not going to work God's righteousness through vengeance or any other method that's worldly or fleshly. And so, we see now, by the way, because Romans 9 starts off and it makes that that account uh, uh, talking about the, the covenant and that relationship and that promise that was given to Abraham and Sarah, but then keep going in verse 10. And not only this, But when Rebekah had also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved. But Esau I have hated. He's quoting again the promise. Right? How, how's how's God loved his people in the past? Right? Continuing on. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared? Beforehand, for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only,
1: but also of the Gentiles. You see, there's a
0: a in this passage. Paul is trying to make this contrast between again that fleshly seed and that promise seed. And it's important to note that just like the children of Abraham, hey, we have our father Abraham, we have our father Abraham. Jesus said, if you were of your father Abraham, you would have done the deeds. Before Abraham was, I was. I am, Jesus said. Jesus said, I am. They took up stones to kill him. They weren't descendants of the promise. Those Pharisees were no more than religious men of the flesh. We see that's the whole warning. Paul also gives us over in, in Galatians, and uh, let's 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 find our spot over there, if you would. Go over to Galatians real quick. Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Let's go to Galatians,
1: and let's let's pick up some reading here and. Let's pick up in verse uh, 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men.
0: But it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And you can go in there and look in Galatians there too, and he makes reference to Ishmael as well, of being that Seed of flesh. Whole point of Galatians is: are You going to return to the law? Are you going to return to these fleshly deeds to justify you? No, you're not justified by that. You're justified through Christ, the promise, Messiah, the promise seed. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness' sake. And those people, those descendants, continued to believe. The promises of God. And so, the question was asked, how has God loved us? And He gives this contrast between the fleshly line of Edom and the spiritual promise seed of Jacob. We need to understand a little bit more about who the Edomites were. So let's go over to Obadiah. Um, you go to Hosea, you go to, uh, skip over to Amos, right next to that, going to be Obadiah.
1: Might bypass Jonah through there too, huh? Or Joel, I'm sorry. If you hit Jonah, hang a left.
0: The whole book of Obadiah is referencing the coming judgment of the Edomites. Remember, who are the Edomites? The Edomites are descendants of Esau. You want to see how God viewed the people of Esau, his descendants? Well, take a look. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, as though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord." And if you continue reading this whole chapter, it is a pronunciation of judgment upon the descendants of Esau. Notice if you would, in the closing section of this, if you would, pick up your reading in verse 17. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. Again, here's that contrast between Jacob's descendants, the people of Israel, and the descendants of Esau. Notice what he says, verse 17. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph's flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Wow.
1: I guess God does hate Esau.
0: His people. Do you not see the reflection of their character? Throughout anything you read on the descendants of Esau, here's what you're going to find. They were a people full of pride. They were people full of hatred towards the things of God. They were people that were self-centered, self-absorbed, living out in the flesh.
1: But think about the original account. Esau was a mighty warrior. He was a man's
0: man. Give me some soup, man. And he sold away his birthright. He didn't care about the things of God. He didn't care about those things.
1: And it's very interesting because we
0: oftentimes want to highlight these things, but we forget that Isaac actually ends up blessing
1: Esau in the end. He was blessed
0: with a lot of land. He was blessed with a lot of earthly goods. Isn't that exactly what he wanted? And we learned last week in Hebrews that, it, that he, at one point he, gets to, he, wants that, he wants that blessing. He wants that birthright and he tries to seek it with repentance. But yet, it was the blessing he wanted. We talked about wanting what was on the master's table, not the master. You see, his fleshly appetite is a very big picture spelled out in the Old Testament. And when you look at his descendants, they were worldly in their nature and worldly in their pursuits. Now let's trace through the line of some of his descendants. Do you know who some of his descendants are? Any of you remember the sons of Korah? Rebellious against Moses. The ground opens up, sucks them in. Descendants of Esau. You remember the Amalekites, arch enemies, battling when the people of Israel were out in the wilderness, wandering for 40 some years. Hey, those Amalekites were pretty prosperous in the land during that time period. Arch enemies, fleshly, sinful, in in depiction of contrast and imagery in the Old Testament. You know who else is some of the descendants of Esau? You just kind of go through. Basically, here's a good rule of thumb. If they were a bad dude in the Scripture, they might be kin folk.
1: Let's fast forward. Do you know who one of the last Edomites was? Because we
0: just read that they'll be destroyed forever. They're going to be cut off forever. If I were to ask you where's Israel on a map today, you'd be able to find it. The children of Jacob. Where we, so, so we can point to where their people are to, still to this day, right? The descendants, right? If I would say, where are the Edomites today? Don't point to the wooden panel. I said Edomites, not termites.
1: Nowhere to be found. They don't have a nation. They don't have a land. Guess who one of the last known... Edomites. By the way, they changed their name. I'm probably going
0: to spell this wrong, but I think it's I-D-U-M-E-A-N. Edomians. Does that help anybody remember who the last one was? Herod. King Herod. Oh, the ultimate arch enemy. The promised seed has finally come on the scene through the line of Jacob, the promised seed, the seed, Jesus Christ on the earth. And here's King Herod, who hears of another king? Oh no, because Herod represents the king of the world. And nobody's going to take my throne, thinks he, his pride, his level, his Edomite nature, his fleshly nature.
1: And what does he do? Have all those kids killed. I'll get him.
0: I'll not let this child grow up. And they hear of this, and they slip out and flee to Egypt, right? Mary and Joseph, take baby Jesus, right? Let me tell you what history says happened to King Herod. This is through the writing, Church History of Eusebius, a book by Paul Mayer, very well-written history account. He's going to share with us Josephus Antiquities, writing of Josephus who who was there in the early church history. Listen to some of these things that were recorded. By the way, a lot of these, again, historical accounts are not from believers, right? A lot of these early church historians that wrote, not necessarily were church historians, but were writing about the church history. But listen to some of these accounts. Listen to what happened. Herod and the infants of Bethlehem. Now when Christ was born, according to the prophecy at Bethlehem of Judea, at the time already noted, magi from the east asked Herod where they could find the one born king of the Jews. They had seen his star, which had occasioned their long journey and their eagerness to worship the infant as God. The request greatly disturbed him. Herod, he thought his sovereignty was in danger and therefore he inquired among teachers of the law where they expected the Christ to be born. When he learned of Micah's prophecy that it would be Bethlehem, he issued a single edict for the massacre of all infants two years old and under in Bethlehem and its vicinity. According to the time indicated by the Magi, thinking that Jesus would surely share the same fate, the the child, however, uh, forestalled the plot by being taken to Egypt since his parents had been forewarned by an angel. This is also reported in the sacred gospel of Matthew. It is worth noting in this regard, the result of Herod's crime against the Christ and the children of his age, without any delay, the justice of God overtook him while he was still alive as as, as prelude to summarize the ways in which he darkened the reputed glories of his reign by the repulsive murder of wife, children, relatives, and friends. No tragic drama has darker shadows as Josephus narrates at length in his histories from the moment he plotted against our Savior and the other innocents. The scourge of God drove him to death. Listen to this account. This is in book 17 of the Jewish Antiquities. Josephus tells of his end. Herod's illness progressively worsened as God exacted punishment for his crimes. A slow fire burned inside him, less obvious to the touch. He had an insatiable desire for food, ulcers in the intestines, terrible pain in the colon, and a clammy edema in his feet. His bladder was inflamed and his genitals gangrenous, breeding worms. His breathing was rapid and extremely offensive due to its stench, and every limb was convulsed intolerably wise onlookers declared that God was exacting retribution from the king for his many wicked deeds. In book two of the Jewish war, Josephus provides a similar account. The disease spread throughout his body with fever an unbearable itching everywhere, continual pain in the colon, a demon in the feet, inflammation of the abdomen, and gangrene in the wormy genitals. His breathing was difficulty uh, was difficult, especially if he lay down. And spasms shook each limb. A punishment, according to the diviners. Still, he clung to life and planned his own treatment in hope of recovery. He crossed the Jordan and took the hot baths at Calero that flow into the Dead Sea, but are sweet and, and potable. The doctors there decided to warm his body by lowering him into a tub of hot oil, but he fainted, turning up his eyes as if dying. Noise from his attendants beating their breasts revived him, but he now gave up hope of recovery and ordered that 50 drachmas be given each of his soldiers in large sum to his officers and friends. Returning to Jericho in extreme depression, he planned a final monstrous crime. He assembled the most eminent men from every village in all Judea and had them locked inside the Hippodrome. Then he told his sister Salome and her uh, husband Alexis, I know the Jews will celebrate my death with rejoicing, but I can be mourned for the sake of others and have a splendid funeral if you do as I direct Surround the men in the Hippodrome with soldiers, and the moment I die, kill them all quickly, so that all Judea and every house will weep over me. Later, tortured by hunger and a convulsive cough, he tried to anticipate his fate. He took an apple and asked for a knife. He cut up apples when he ate them and then raised his right hand to stab himself, but was prevented. Herod ordered the execution of yet a third of his legitimate sons, Antipater, in addition to the two already murdered and then died in great agony. Such was Herod's end, a just punishment for the children he murdered at Bethlehem and vicinity. After this, an angel appeared in a dream to Joseph while he was in Egypt and directed him to return to Judea with the child and his mother declaring that those who sought the life of the little child were dead. The evangelist continues, But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. Matthew 2, 22. Do you see the contrast between the descendants of Esau? And the promised seed of Jacob, the promised seed of Abraham, the promised seed from the beginning of time. In order to understand how God has loved the people of Israel, they have to understand God is a God of faithfulness. He is a God who keeps His promises. Again, if you've you've lost sight if you look at this and want to narrow on how he hated Esau. It's how he's loved Jacob. It's not that, that, guys, if we all got what we deserve, we deserve hell. We deserve eternal punishment. That's what we deserve. The amazing, glorious, beautiful thing is that God would dare to even covenant, to give us a promise, to redeem us, to give us hope, to love us, to redeem us from our wickedness. That's amazing love. That's glorious love. That's the love of Christ. And so when he answers the question from the people, how have you loved us? He references the Edomites.
1: Where were the Edomites? At that point,
0: they were destroyed about, well, not destroyed, at that point, they had been scattered about five years after the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so so let's go back in the timeline. Israel's taken captive by the Babylonians. The Edomites thought, ha, 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 we're going to rule again. Boom, they got taken out about five years later. Now, it's interesting that you notice in the text that we pick up the discussion, look in verse 4. Even though Edom has said, we've been impoverished. Okay, we recognize we've been taken out
1: temporarily.
0: Even though Edom has said we've been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of, the, of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. And they would seek to rebuild. A hundred years now into this, no doubt they see they're probably because they couldn't be full on power again at this point. They have to know what happened in their great fall, Obadiah's announcement, right? They no doubt have looked at how God has preserved and protected them through the years against these people, how he's always delivered them. And by the way, they're scattered right now. We're back in our land and we've rebuilt the temple, we've rebuilt the city, we've rebuilt the wall. Hmm. So, God, you're saying.
1: Hmm. I guess we haven't been paying attention to how God loves us. Church, have we been missing how God loves us?
0: Can we not also look to our past? Can we not also look through what God has taken us through? Can we not look at where we are today in the midst of all the circumstances in the world and say, glory be to God, thank you God for delivering us once again? Thank you, God, for keeping your promises. Thank you, God, for being true to your covenant, being true to your name. Praise be to God. And he reminds the people of Israel, he says here, he says, your eyes, verse 5, your eyes shall see. And you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. It's not just going to happen for you, it's going to happen across the globe. And there's coming a day, ultimately this will be fulfilled, when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is coming a glorious day when all of God's people, from the Old Testament through the New Testament, all of God's chosen people will declare and praise His name and see it is finished. Oh, death, where is your sting? That day's coming. And that's a promise that we can stand on, just as these people should have known the promises that had been given them through time. And yet, they're, here they are, back
1: in their land again. And so,
0: we see the discussion. Again, the contrast of nations. Yeah, they might destroy, I mean, they might rebuild, but God will destroy. But not so with Israel. Israel. They're back. The city's been rebuilt. The temple's been rebuilt. The wall's been rebuilt. Their eyes are going to see. They're going to say this is coming. It'll be ultimately fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Micah 5.4 tells us that.
1: So what do we conclude through this?
0: How are we done? process this. How would understand? By the way, if you want a little extra history, you can go into that 400-year period, okay? Uh, It's not one of the, um, not part of our canon, but the the book of Maccabees, okay, the Maccabean. When you study that history, guess who again is kind of ruling and reigning? Some of those Edomites and the people of Israel and the Nabataeans. They come in, they decimate them again, take them out again. Just like God said, they're going to keep trying to rebuild, going to take them down. Going to keep rebuilding, going to take them down. Until last known history after King Herod, we don't seem to find any record of those
1: people. What's the conclusion?
0: How's God loved you, Israel? How's God loved you? This is the context of the Old Testament book of Malachi. How has God loved you? He chose you.
1: He chose you. We've we've
0: looked at these passages. Don't take my word for it. Read the Scriptures. Look at the Genesis account. Look at this account. Look at the Romans account. Look at the Hebrews account. Look through these things. There's no denying. In all the people of the world, God spoke to Abraham. He chose Abraham. He made a covenant with him. His plan has been before the foundation of the world to save his people through the promise of Jesus
1: Christ. And He chose Israel. He sustained you through the ages.
0: Again, look at their history. Look at how He led them out of Egypt. Look how He sustained them through the wilderness. Look at all the enemies that came against them. And yet, he continually, time after time after time after time. Yeah, he chastised them. Those whom he loves, he chastens. Yeah, when they got out of line, and and guess what? He'll do the same to us. He'll spank us, right? Not a term many people recognize now. There used to be this term called spanking back in the day. Um, God
1: will put you in time (laughs) out, he will punish you. But he sustains you through the ages.
0: In Israel, He's restoring you. In this time, when this is written, in the initial context of that moment, how did He love us? How's He love us? Tell us, show us.
1: We don't get it.
0: He's restoring you. He's with you. You remember through our Old Testament study when they rebuilt the temple, and the old people are are like, oh, (laughs) it's not glorious like it used to be. It used to be beautiful back, back in my day. And the young people are like, oh, it's glorious and beautiful. And yet God says to both of them, look, man. That's anyway. He says, Was I not with you back then? Was I not with you when you came out of Egypt? Was I not with uh, in, in the tent? Was I not in this tabernacle? Was I not in that temple built that you that, am I not in this one? This is the point. And one day there's coming a great shaking. I'm not, am I not going to be with you then? I'm with you. That should be confidence enough to know how God loves you. He's still with you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to abandon you. He is sworn by His name. He is sworn by His oath. He is sworn by His character. That should give you great confidence, Israel. But He's saying this in the midst of their apathy and their complacency. He's saying repent, return, be restored. His desire is for that renewal, for that replenishing, for that joy of the Lord to be there. Not what they had been experiencing. And we're going to continue to unpack with Malachi. You're going to see they're offering blemished sacrifices. They're they're just giving him the leftovers. They're They're not showing up with the right heart attitude. It's just a humdrum, well, I guess we'll go to church today kind of attitude. It's just this leftover mindset. And it's not just the people, it's the priest, it's everyone. It's all of the people. And this is why the prophet Malachi is coming to them and he's saying in essence, repent, return, be restored. That's his desire.
1: So let's get some application out of this, church. The New Testament gives
0: the same description for those in Christ Jesus, for those of us in the church. By the way, Old Testament, New Testament, you're saved the same way, guys. By grace through faith in Christ Jesus. You're either in Christ or you're not. Ephesians 1, 4-5, just as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world,
1: Are you in Christ
0: today? Because Christ is the only one who can offer you eternal life. Christ is the only one who was there before time began. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship, in perfect fellowship, in perfect union. He didn't need us. He chose to create us. He chose to give us life. Everything we have, we owe to Him. He is a gracious God. He is a glorious God. And yet, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will.
1: Just imagine for a second you're all up for adoption. I mean, just imagine that I walk in and and I adopt five of you. Isn't that beautiful that I would actually adopt five children? Well, you didn't adopt the rest of us. And everybody's just man-huffing-puffing. Well, put a wet blanket on this glorious day of adoption. God's God. I'm not.
0: You're not. And there are some mysteries that, this tension presents in Scripture and it's there and we're not going to ignore it. We're not going to skip over it. But it says what it says. It says what it says.
1: And so, again, how's God loved us? (laughs) Oh, let me count the ways. Hmm. You know,
0: you think about it, church. Who are you? What is our identity in Christ? You are a chosen generation. That's what the Scriptures say. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Has He called you out of darkness?
1: You know, when you think about uh, these truths,
0: I can't help but think about, go, go with me over to, real quick, we got a few minutes left. Go, go over to Corinthians. Um, let's look in, make sure I find my spot.
1: Go to Second Corinthians. 4.
0: 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the glorious light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. But we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that last verse. Think about the beginning of time when God spoke and said, let there be light. There was darkness. And God said, let there be light. And our blinders were on in this world. We too once were children of wrath. We too once were under the the collapse of the wrath of God unless God does something. And God said, let there be light. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When I look to Christ, I don't have to question whether or not God loves me. God demonstrated His love toward us. And while we were still in the dark, we were still in in our sin, Christ died for us. That's a glorious light. That light came into the world and man didn't want to have anything to do with that light because man loves darkness rather than light. But when the glorious light of the gospel penetrates the darkness of our hearts, it illuminates us to the truth. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. He is the promised seed. And that demonstrates to us God's love for us.
1: Church, we need to be cautious of the contempt that is bred from familiarity. You see, I think we're just like the people of Israel. And it's told that that's given as our example. You want to know what I look like? You want to know what you look like? Look at them. We're, We're the same. What has God done for me lately?
0: You know, sometimes we get comfortable in our relationships and that, uh, that can open the door to apathy. And,
1: and if we're not careful, we begin
0: to walk the same path. And we're going to see this path that they walked on. You may be wondering, like the Israelites, well, how, how has God loved us?
1: And so church, He's chose you. He's sustained you. He's restoring you. He's with you. Isn't that good to know? He's not going to leave you. His name's on the line. This is about His covenant. This is about His promises. This is God's name.
0: That should free you. not based on your performance. Not based on what you do or don't do, based on what's been done for you. And when you understand that, that should free you to want to live for him, to want to serve him, to yield and surrender your life to him
1: for his namesake. The church, I think the mission is marching order is still the same for us. We need to repent. We need to return. We need to be
0: restored. Sometimes, though, the relationship isn't severed because eternal security is something that God promises because God is eternal. And when he gave you eternal life, he gave you eternal life. Don't let anybody tell you you can lose your salvation. There's another passage of Scripture that says, Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in thy name? Did we not, did I not cast out demons in thy name? And he will say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That doesn't imply a previous relationship. He says, I never knew you. So the question this morning is, does he know you?
1: Not do you know him. Does He know you?
0: Because one day we all will stand before a judgment seat. We all one day will stand before our Creator who's given us life. And the question is, has our heart pursuit been more like in the line of Esau? Fleshly appetites, the things of this world. Give me the blessings, not the blesser. Has my focus and my heart motivation been towards the things of this world and its fleshly appetites? Or is it to recognize our fallen
1: framework and our desperate need of a Savior?
0: To say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I recognize that I'm falling way short of the glory of God. But God, by Your promises, by Your namesake, because of
1: who you are. I surrender my life, and may your will be done.
0: God, give us that leading that we need to be the people he's called us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Lord, these contrasts that we see through Esau and Jacob in the contrast between the descendants of these people in the Old Testament trace all the way through to the New Testament. But ultimately, Lord, we recognize that the fulfillment of the promises are found in the person of Jesus Christ. It all points to Him. And He is the way, and He is the truth, and He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And Lord, my prayer would be today that if there are those here in darkness, that the glorious light of the gospel would shine on their heart. That you would speak this truth to their heart. That their their heart would be fertile soil to receive this truth. It would not be hardened like the rocky soil of the hearts of those that we've looked at today in those fleshly uh, responses and the rejection of God over and over and over again in their life. We know that Pharaoh hardened his heart and we know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We recognize that there is a sovereignty of God and there is a responsibility of man. None of these people we've talked about from the Edomite line uh, can stand before a holy God without responsibility. They all clearly rejected for the sake of fleshly appetite. And Lord, my fear is that there might be someone here today who's on that same path of darkness. And I pray, I beg, and I plead that the glorious light of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, that He loved you and He demonstrated His love for you and while you were still in your sins, Christ died for you. Turn from your sin today. Repent of your sin and cry out to the only name given under heaven amongst men by which to be saved. May you call upon the name of Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Bow your heart and knee to Him today. Wherever you are, right there in your seat, To simply cry out to the living God to have mercy upon your soul that you might see, hear, believe, and know, be regenerated and drawn to God to know him that you might be known by him.
1: God makes a promise.
0: It's not by the will of man, but it is by the call of God. And he promises that anyone who comes to him, he will in no way. No way, turn away. He will not cast you out. By faith, come to Him today. Father, I pray that Your Word has been rightly divided. I pray that it will find fertile soil. And I pray that You will help us, Lord, as Your people to recognize
1: whose we are and who we are. For Your name's sake. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.